You know, it's weird how much my opinions tend to change over time, especially when it goes to comes to the job, you know. Sitting back and going through a work with analysis mode on. It's weird. Going through this one, especially. I have no fond memories of this episode. I never liked this episode. In fact, <laughs> when I was first watching Deep Space Nine, this is probably the official moment at which I just started being like, <sighs> and just started getting really uninvested in the show. Now, that may sound like a weird statement, so I'm going to follow it up with an even weirder statement. You ready for this? I think this would be a much better episode if Q wasn't in it. I know. It's weird. Now, for those of you who don't quite get it, uh, I am a really big fan of John DeLancey. I think he's awesome in quite a few different works. And I'm a pretty big fan of Q. Although, as I have pointed out in the past over on Voyager, and will point out in the future on TNG, the portrayal of Q varies a little bit, and so my enjoyment of the character tends to vary a little bit. Sometimes he's incredibly awesome. You know, Q Who, Tapestry... Uh, all good things. Sometimes he's... Well, he's like this. And I know that there's this whole mischievous spirit, Loki, whatever thing that they like to portray, but honestly, I've never really quite gotten the vibe... I, sh I shouldn't say the vibe. I've never bought the excuse, bought the excuse, that Q is just random. And that's why he's his character's inconsistent. I've heard that defense for, before. I've never actually bought it. I want to give some credit, though. So, first of all, this episode was written by Robert Hewitt, Robert Hewitt Wolf. I don't know why I stumble over that word, forgive me. And you may or may not recognize that name. He's one of the bigger-name writers for a fairly large chunk of DS9. Pretty much a, a huge number of episodes from here to Season 5 are going to have him working on it, along with Iris Stephen Bear. Uh, obviously, Ronald D. Moore would be the other major writer in the future, but you get the idea. Um... Big name in DS9. This is actually his first DS9 outing. And what's funny about this is he sat down to write the episode and then, you know, went through the second draft and they were putting it out. And the most of the people who work on this, you know, you see the interviews and you see John Delancey's interviews and you see uh, Robert Mayhew, I think, was the one who directed this. I, I don't remember. Forgive me. I didn't write his name down. But, you know, you see the interviews from the people and it's all positive. It's like, yeah, it was good. It was good. It was good. Two people didn't like this episode, or at least were critical of this episode. The writer, Robert Hewitt Wolf, and John Delancey, the guy who plays Q. And, of course, I am critical of this episode. See, the writer, Mr. Wolf, believed that Q was an unnecessary addition and that too much time and attention was focused on him. I've heard other people uh, mention this, including, of course, Sci-Fi Debris, who I mention all the time, because I think I've seen all of his work at this point. But anyways, I've seen other reviewers uh, look at this episode and state that it's like the Q and Vosh episode in which the DS9 people are guest stars. And I tend to agree with that. So much of the canvas of this episode is focused on Q, and frankly, too much, which is even weirder when we get to something I'll talk about in a minute. Also, <clears throat> excuse me. John DeLancey didn't like how Q was portrayed in this episode. I don't either. That's what it really boils down to. Now, 
I was struggling to come up with terms, like a, like a phrase, to describe all of my problems with Q's portrayal. Uh, John Delancey said it word for word. He he nailed it for me. He says Q in this episode is a skirt chaser, and he's right. Of all of the many presentations we've seen of Q, of the mischievous person, of the agent of the continuum, of the secret advocate, the idea of Q chasing a skirt is actually kind of ridiculous. And frankly, I would argue, actually qualifies as character assassination. There are other specific moments which I feel are genuinely out of character for Q in this episode, but we'll get to those later. The only thing I want to add to this is that, in complete contrast to my earlier thoughts, I think the inclusion of Vosh was a great idea. Not... I mean, granted, you know, if if you remove Q, more of the attention would have to be played on the DS9 crew, so that might get rid of the guest star focus problem. But, nevertheless, I think Vosh fit in pretty well. Vosh has always been the human that doesn't fit the Roddenberry ideal. She was pretty much designed to be that. The I'm going to use my own terminology here. The mercenary human. And the idea of her just kind of appearing on Deep Space Nine, the the outpost station where they're trying really hard to try and get around the Roddenberry box as hard as possible, just kind of fits. And in fact, Iris Stephen Bear himself said uh, more than once that he was wanting to bring her back as DS9 was still being developed. They just never really came up with a story that it fit. And given so much of the focus later on would be on the war, that makes sense. <laughs> it's a bit of a shame, though. I do think they could do more stuff with her in the future. But this is actually her final outing... Uh, of three, which is kind of weird from my perspective, because of course I'm going through DS9 and TNG side by side, which means I haven't gotten to Captain's Holiday or Cupid yet. So I suppose I'll talk more about her there, since really this is just a continuation of her character. I do want to point out one interesting thing. This episode marks two firsts for Bashir's character arc, of all things. It's probably the only thing that's really noteworthy as far as the continuation of the story, in my opinion. Mm, maybe one other thing. So, Bashir is sitting there gushing about the most boring story in the world. <laughs> that's not true. He's actually doing a pretty decent job of telling it. I actually like Alexander Siddick. He does a good job of the role. But he's sitting there telling this, what is supposed to be a boring story. Maybe I'm biased. You know, medical background, mother and aunt, and pretty much mother's entire side of the family, you know. So, <laughs> maybe I'm biased, but I actually found the story kind of interesting. Not, not you know, engaging, but at the very least not boring. And I'll compare that later, don't, don't forget that. And he's telling this story to her, and O'Brien's in the background just going, Oh my god. And you can see the rivalry already developing here. Now, this is actually the first time they really touch on the rivalry between O'Brien and Bashir that would eventually develop into one of the most awesome friendships in the history of Star Trek. I'm sorry, that's my opinion. <laughs> I mean, it's way up there, like like with the Spock and Kirk level of friendship, in my opinion, the, the connection between O'Brien and Bashir, possibly higher. And the, the interesting thing, though, is that Putting them up together is such a logical move, it's almost too obvious. O'Brien, even going back to his first presentation, even as of now, we've already seen him twice, because he shows up in uh, uh, Lonely Among Us. So we've already seen him twice over in TNG. He's just this kind of, you know, lovable, affable, you get along with him. I mean, we've just had an entire episode just before now about how 
easygoing and down to earth and you know understandable and all that fun stuff that O'Brien is, right? And then we have Bashir, who at the moment, remember, they hadn't decided on the whole thing yet. At the moment, you're looking at Bashir as if he's this high tower intellectual type who is a dick, who also has no experience, right? That was the original intent. He's this, this high tower book learned person who has no experience, who is going to be brought low and then rise back up while he's out here on the frontier. You've got two people pretty much at the exact opposite ends of the spectrum while still staying on the same side. And so putting those two together and developing that rivalry, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And they don't really call attention to it. It's just O'Brien's in the background going, and he doesn't even do it overly expressively. In fact, I had to rewind to rewatch the scene a little bit because I, I decided to just watch O'Brien this time. And he, he is pretty, yeah, whatever, you know, as opposed to what some people would do, would way overemphasize the motions. No, he's, he's nice and subtle. The second interesting thing is this is the first time they mention the pre-ganglionic, post-ganglionic fiber nerve issue. Now, <laughs> this is interesting for several reasons. This is the kind of thing that I, I can't believe they didn't plan this out. They didn't. Like, everything agrees. This was never planned out. But he made a really basic mistake. I turned to Mum. When we were watching this, I was like, what's that mean? And she gives me a really rough description. Basically, uh, we've got an immune system nerve, which can be just about anywhere, with regards to the uh, pre-ganglionic fiber. And the post-ganglionic nerve is up here uh, uh, more connected to uh, the... Ah, the... Oh, jeez, I can't remember my terminology. Forgive me. It's connected to the thing that's connected to the eyes. Uh, and I can't think of the damn name of it. Forgive me. But anyways, the point being is it's the kind of thing that's actually really, like, you, you shouldn't confuse those two things. And, as it happens later on in DS9, they will flat out say, there's, there's thing, two things are nothing alike. Because they aren't. I mean, there's barely any similarities between the two, even from a purely medical perspective. So, my, my first reaction as a kid, well, at this point as a teenager, you know, looking at mom and being like, what? Was that he's an idiot. And given his portrayal so far, that seems to fit. He's a moron. He doesn't know anything. But looking back, this is where that seed is really planted with Bashir. Except, not intentionally. Only in hindsight do we see this begin. And he flat out admits, yeah, I wasn't actually a valedictorian because I made that one mistake. Anyways. So, <clears throat> then Bashir goes to skirt chase uh, after Vosh. And what's weird is the scene is structured so strangely, because he shows up, and he is earnest and honest and just says, yeah, I'd like to ask you out. And I'm just sitting here like, wait, that's not Bashir. That actually makes a damn sense. That's, that's perfectly normal. Then he ruins it by adding the, those 20 minutes will feel like eternity, which is a dumb line. Guys, don't do that. <laughs> don't, okay? I don't even care if you mean it. You might actually mean it. I don't know, but it sounds dumb, okay? At best, you're looking at someone looking at you like, oh, that's really sweet in a really stupid way, you know? So that just completely ruins that. Then Quark. Of course, Quark shows up, and, and she just dances around Quark. He's like, hey, so I heard you have some stuff, and I, I, I thought I could set up an auction. She's like, yeah, okay. Now... 
we know that Vosh didn't intend any of this. She didn't realize the wormhole was a thing. She didn't realize she was coming back. She was just gathering treasures and trinkets because that's kind of what she does. She is a very mercenary archaeologist. Uh, like Indiana Jones, if he if you take out the line, that belongs in a museum, you know, just remove that. Instead, that belongs in my pocket is pretty much where it goes. And uh, well, actually, even that's not true because she just wants the money from it, right? And the adventure, excitement, etc. So Quark comes in, and she immediately jumps on the opportunity. Oh, hey, you're a fixer. All right, get me an auction going. And Quark, of course, has contacts. This is probably the first time we see the level of influence Quark actually has. And this is important because this, this will actually be relevant throughout the course of the show, but Quark, up until this point, has a bar on a station that's not even in that good of a condition or position. And we'll learn more about why he was here during the Cardassian occupation in the future. But what's relevant right now is that he doesn't seem like the kind of person who's particularly well off. And yet he has the knowledge and contacts to pull together, in his own words, the wealthy and stupid, all together in order to sell to them. And that's interesting to me. I find myself wondering about that. I'll discuss that topic more as it comes up later, but this is the first time we see some hint that Quark can stretch his reach a little further than his pocketbook can. Anyways. <sighs> so, you know, then we've got some great initial tension. We've got a classic series of escalation. Classic, writing 101, or 105, I guess I should say, where problem, but it's okay, we solved the problem, everything's good. And then the problem is repeated, and now you're worried because, you know, it was before it was this horrible thing, and now it's this horrible thing on either a larger scale or a more personal level or whatever. Very classic series of tension escalation. So, you know, runabouts, doomed. We get to the station. Station is now doomed. Now, what I find especially interesting about this, and maybe this is just me. I believe I talked about this during my Star Trek IV rumination as well. There's something particularly, almost uniquely terrifying about the idea of being in a space object, station, shuttle, vessel, ship, whatever, and being out of power. Because at that point, you're just in a really big coffin in space, and you're as blind as can be, and you're going to freeze very quickly, and you're probably going to suffocate before you freeze. I mean, it's it's just bad all around, right? And that's always been something that's kind of horrifyingly terrifying to me. It's it's right up there with being at the bottom of the, the Marianas Trench in a submarine whose engine just sputtered out. Just ignore the pressure concerns for a second. You, you get my point, right? It's just horrifying. So the idea of this runabout just barely making it here and them having to plug in additional power just to get the thing open is kind of uniquely, oh, God. And then, of course, thus when they escalate to the station, starting to have the beginning symptoms, that adds all the more flavor to the tension. And that brings me to a point I want to bring up. As I said before, if you eject Q from this episode, I legitimately believe it would really add to the overall flavor and enjoyment of this episode. Because the tension of the danger to the station actually reached me. They do a good job of presenting that. And Vosh herself is an interesting character. And they do some good interactions with her and the others. The way she bounces off uh, some of the other characters. She doesn't bounce off that many. But she plays well to Cisco, which is actually kind of surprising. She plays well to Quark, and she plays well to Bashir. And those are the only ones she really interacts with. And I like how the, the dynamic that's presented there. I don't... I, I mean, I think that works fine. 
I do have one one concern though. Well, actually, I have a lot of concerns, but why is? I guess I look at an episode of this and I think, what are you trying to accomplish? I know that sounds weird, because not every episode, not every edition or game or book or whatever has to set out with a specific goal. But I've noticed this a lot about early Star Trek. Voyager did this, TNG's doing this all over the place, and DS9 has been doing this as well. The idea of framing an episode as if there's a, there, there's a problem or a dilemma to be solved, and it's framed as if it's a mystery to be, to be deduced. Um, uh, a good example of this would be the TNG episode, I believe it's called Clues, where there's the, you know, planet, oh gosh, we just lost a day. You remember that one by chance? If not, we'll get to it. I'm pretty sure it's called Clues. But anyways, that's a mystery episode that's very well presented and keeps the viewer engaged in trying to figure out what's going on as they go through it. Remember Me is most of a good mystery episode in the similar vein. But then you have episodes like these and the ones I just mentioned in TNG and Voyager where it's like there's a mystery but we, the viewer, figure it out very quickly because of the way they present it. So Vosh is like, all right, here's this stuff. And we spend a whole scene, it's like five minutes, on a scene which whose only purpose is to present the crystal, a.k.a. the embryonic life form, to us. So immediately, if we have even half a brain, even if we're doing it unconsciously, we see that crystal is important. Whether it's important to the plot or important to the characters or important to Q or whatever, there's something relevant about that crystal. It has been drawn attention to. And then they start having these mysterious power failures that only started happening when Vosh came aboard and now are happening on the station now that Vosh has come aboard. Boom! Mystery solved. We figured it out, right? This is not a big in-depth mystery. But the episode frames most of the uh, progression of events as the crew trying to solve this. Or at least that's the B plot. Because the A plot is about Vosh and the and Q. Which brings me to my next point, before we get to Q. Before we get to Q, why does Vosh never bring up the Dominion? No, I'm legitimately curious. Like, I can kind of talk my way around why the Dominion aren't brought up in several of the instances where Gamma Quadrant members are coming up. Like like the previous episode, uh, Captive something. God, what was it called? <laughs> I just... Captive Pursuit. Or an upcoming episode, uh, Move Along Home. There's a, it, it's actually reasonable to explain why the D Dominion wouldn't come up, even though it should have. And of course, we know the Dominion weren't even invented yet, so that's the real reason. But Vosh, who is not evil, mercenary, yes. Lying, conniving, absolutely. But she is not the kind of person who was okay with that kind of thing. She doesn't say anything about him? There's only really two possibilities here, if we're looking at it from an in-universe perspective. Because we know the reason out-of-universe, they weren't invented yet. But in-universe, there's only two possibilities here that I can think of, and I'd love to hear your guys' theories on this one as well. Possibility one, Q, knowing, you know, Q is the kind of person who is already, you know, knows that some horrible things have to happen in order for, you know, a greater good to be served or for pro progress to be made or whatever. He had a wonderful speech about that in Q, which I'm actually going to quote for you later. i got it written right down there. So he could be like, the Federation needs the Dominion War, as horrible and devastating as it is, because it's mandatory to really restructure 
the alpha and beta quadrants into something that will be able to to move forward you know progress is messy to, to summarize all that option two somehow she never encountered the dominion despite them being the dominion uh, I suppose you could also add Q might have away the uh, the memories of the dominion for her to accomplish point one but you get the idea whatever so now we get to Q. I'm finally going to talk about him. 12 minutes and 50 seconds, not counting the brief snippet in the teaser, is the first time Q shows up. Now I mentioned that. That doesn't sound like a lot of time, but that is over a quarter of the entire episode. You just chop 25% of the episode out before the basically the guy the entire episode revolves around shows up. And I think in more ways than one, this kind of shows why Q's induction was a later addition that wasn't necessary. Oh, did I mention that? I actually don't remember if I did. This is actually my second take of this one. Forgive me, I had some issues. Um, the, the original script was just Vosh. The original script was just Vosh and Deep Space Nine. And then people in the writings room were like, well, if you're going to have Vosh, you might as well bring Q on. Everyone likes Q. He's a very popular character. Okay, so Q was kind of grafted onto the plot. And you can kind of see this presentation in the episode because, the, again, the first quarter of the episode is Deep Space Nine and Vosh and the presentation of this initial mystery intention. The last three quarters of the episode is the Vosh and Q show. Excuse me, the Q and Vosh show. So then he starts talking, you know, I could take you to the Delta Quadrant. Something about that made me laugh. I don't, I don't know why. I guess it's only the advantage of hindsight. I decided to look it up. This episode came out three years before Death Wish would come out. Three years. Just interesting in its own right. Um, so, okay. Um, I'm with it so far, and Q is upset about being abandoned by her skirt chasing. I already talked about that. But I was willing to go with it right up until the 19-minute mark. I wrote it down right here. 19 minutes. Bashir has asked Vosh out. Okay. Then Q goes and intervenes because... This is the official moment where the episode started going to ugh, territory for me. Because why does Q give a damn? Again, this goes back to the whole skirt chasing thing. This is basically human jealousy. This is the kind of thing that you'd expect a random guy or girl, no need to be genderist here, a random person would say if they had a jilted lover who was currently seeking, going out on a date, a, you know, a, a romantically inclined dinner with someone else. And they just also happen to have the ability to you know, do that. Although, interesting fact, Q never snaps his fingers in this episode. I do that as, as a kind of a thing nowadays, and I have for many years, but he never does it in this episode. Anyways, why would Q do this? Why would Q care? This is the first of many instances in which Q just comes across as completely out of character. I'm not going to list all of them. There's several. So then events happen. I have very few notes here, because a lot of this is just, uh, whatever, whatever, get on with it, get on with it. Then there's a scene I had to pause the episode because I burst out laughing. See, I've watched several Star Trek blooper collections over the years, and there's one that I always remember. It was one that was released um, on VHS, oh god, early 2000s. It's a long time ago at this point. It had a bunch of uh, Voyager and Deep Space Nine uh, 
outtakes, specifically Voyager and Deep Space Nine. And there were some really good ones in there. Uh, Tim Russ is hysterical. I think I've referenced this before in my Voyager stuff. Anyways, there's this one clip where Cisco grabs Q and is like, Drag them back, Q. No! And, and Q's like, oh, what? You'll ravish me. <laughs> and then everyone just bursts into laughing because he completely screwed that up. And, and, and then, of course, uh, Avery Brooks is like, well, I might, you know. I can't see that scene anymore without laughing because that's what I first think of. But then, then Q pretty much flat out says I was hoping for some witty repartee, which is probably the only thing that's actually in character for Q, that one line, that he doesn't deride you or mock you because he's deriding you or mocking you. He wants you to bite back. He wants to have the intellectual engagement. You can't match him in any other way. But you can at least talk back to him, and in that way he can find engagement in interacting with, let's be honest, lesser beings. That actually makes sense to me. And it's, it's not the only way to go about that, as other Q and Quinn in particular would show, but that is a way to present that. Then they start the boxing match, and Cisco slugs Q. Now... What you think of that moment, I've noticed, is really variable. I've seen people love that scene. I've seen people who only remember that one scene from the episode. I've heard of people who, when they think of DS9, they think, is that the one where the captain punched Q? And that's all they remember is this one moment. So it certainly resonated within people's memories. But I think this was done for all the wrong reasons. Because, and I'm just going to say this bluntly, it's too obvious. Because they say what they're doing and why they're doing it. Now... I know, and I do know, writing non-obviously is more difficult than it sounds. Sometimes you just want to say this, and so you just say this, and you just get it out there in writing. But this is so obvious and so overt that especially going back and re-watching it, it's like, it feels like, it feels like the prim proper family whose child has decided to shred their clothes and wear punk hair to differentiate themselves from their parents. And for no other reason. They don't actually like it. You know, they, they haven't actually found their identity yet. They just want to be as diverse from the originator as possible. If you, don't, if you haven't figured out what I'm going with yet, Q flat out says, Picard never hit me. And then Cisco says, word for word, I'm not Picard. And that's why that scene exists. They wanted to make it really, really obvious that Cisco is not Picard. Now, all of that ranting aside, I get why they did that. Because, remember, DS9 was a very troubled show, especially early on, and was a very risky venture. One franchise having two shows going simultaneously? That is almost unheard of in this era. Hell, even nowadays, that's a thing that's... Sem well, that's not true. Until, I'd say, maybe about five or six years ago, that has been a very rare thing. You just don't do that. It, was, it wasn't until, uh, honestly, I would say Marvel really started stepping it up that that became a normal thing, because I don't count the, uh, uh, oh god, I can't think of it, the criminal investigation shows as the same franchise, it's just the same type of show in different area. Um, my opinion. I, I suppose that could be considered an outlier, outlier. But the point remains, this is the kind of thing that you don't do it. And they needed to make it very clear that while this is still Star Trek, this is not the next generation. And they wanted to make it absolutely adamant. So they have Cisco clobber Q. That's about as overt as you can get. 
<sighs> then there's this de decompression issue. Yeah, the shield, they, they lose compression. Oh my god. And O'Brien has to manually walk over and close down the ports or shields or blast doors or whatever they got. I was about to make a big stink about that and how incredibly stupid that is, but I was like, wait, it's Cardassian. Never mind, that explains everything. Moving on. <laughs> then there's a scene I genuinely like. It's probably the only scene in the latter half that I actually enjoy. It's a scene between Odo and Quark. What a shock! I swear, I, 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 know, I mean no Babylon 5 comparison here, but Odo and Quark are basically the Jakar and Londo of DS9. You just put the two in a room and it, it, it works. It just works out. Almost every single time. So, they have a great scene together. You see some great chemistry. You know, that's finally really developing there. Although it already has, so I suppose that doesn't mean anything. And their Quark comes down and says, What were you this time? You know, as if this is kind of a game between the two of them. And Odo's just like, no, no. But what I really love about the scene is that Odo derides the accumulation of things. This is actually not the first time Odo's done this. He had a very cynical, like, even more cynical than I am. And I am a deeply, bitterly cynical person. So e even more cynical than I am view of relationships. You know, that whole compromise speech he gave uh, in the first episode that had Keiko. Uh, I don't remember which episode that was. Forgive me. It was a couple episodes ago. You know, that one? That whole speech? Here he does the same kind of thing with accumulating objects. You know, you get just more and more crap until you die, and then your relatives sell it off and begin the cycle anew. And it, like the previous speech, really just is what it sounds like. Someone who is deeply cynical and bitter, who is lashing out at something that they either don't enjoy or don't comprehend. Now... That's cool, because that, that helps to distinguish Odo as a character. But then Quark comes in and just nails him with it. He even gets Odo considerate, because he starts saying, well, what about, like, maybe like a really nice suit? Or a ring? And, he just started, and he's thinking about this. And he doesn't just say random stuff that Quark would like. He tries to narrow down what Odo would like. And he finally hits it with a nice latinum-lined bucket. And Odo considers it for a moment. I love that. Because that is very Ferengi. It's that whole businessman thing again, right? Or to put it in another way, wealth and economy, money, those aren't actually the problems. It's greed that's the problem. You know, people like to use that quote, money is the root of all evil. That, that's actually a complete misquote and, frankly, a misinterpretation. It is the love of money that is the root of all evil. Avarice, greed, naked, violent greed is the problem. So, yeah, I certainly have issues with greed. I've spoken against corporate greed in almost my entire life, but especially on this show when it comes to video game development, hashtag screw CBS, you know, all that stuff. But there's nothing wrong, inherently, with wanting something. And I like that. I like the way they present that. I like the insight that gives into Quark and the Ferengi. And the fact that he clearly does reach Odo, who then dismisses it because Quark said it, but is still now considering the concept of want without the concept of avarice. It's a nice touch. And I don't think this was done deliberately at all, 
But we will find over the years that Odo does want, he even wants things. I wonder how much of that came because Quark explained it to him in such a manner. Anyways, so then Q threatens Vosh, straight up. Actually, uh, I would say abuses her. I hate to use that word because anytime I use that word regarding a person and another person who are in a relationship, there's just flaring klaxons go off. But uh, what else do you call it? He basically tortures her and then lets her go. And then he says something. He says, uh, I forget the exact wording because I didn't write it down, but he basically says, the galaxy is a dangerous place when you're alone. It would be so much better if you had me to protect you. By the way, the trash truck's about to go by. I apologize. Anyways, this is why I put that quote from Q-Who, okay? Forgive me, because this is one of my favorite quotes in all of Star Trek. And I quote, if you can't take a little bloody nose, then maybe you ought to go back home and crawl into your bed. It's not safe out here. It's wondrous, with treasures to satiate desires both subtle and gross. But it's not for the timid. And I love that quote, because it's so true! You, I mean, there, it is the dichotomy of the danger and the risk, as well as the reward that pretty much informs exploration and adventure. And progress moving forward as a society requires a bloody more than a bloody nose right we've seen this for millennia in real life for 10,000 years we've seen this you get my point right and so to see that this cue versus that cue I think that's really the moment where I was just like all right this this I, I officially am head canning this out this isn't cue it's another Q masquerading, because this just isn't him. I'm sorry. And then it gets worse, because then he goes and starts mocking the command crew and how stupid they are. Why? <laughs> Why does he do that? Why does he care? He hasn't given a damn about them in any aspect. He's always been focused on Vosh. So even with this out-of-character Q, he then does something further out-of-character. And then... And then... We have the auction scene. Now, what I find weird is that Vosh is an intelligent, conniving, uh, cunning, mercenary, brilliant human. And she is a skilled archaeologist. That's one thing I've always liked that they maintained about her character. And they've done it in all three of her episodes that she's been in. But I, my point is she acts, in my opinion, out of character. She stands up there on this podium and starts discussing the significance of the work, as if she was teaching at a lecture. She knows her audience, she knows who she's talking to, and she knows she's trying to sell this to them. What the hell is she doing? She knows better than that, and when questioned it, she just says, well, of course, I'm just discussing this proper historical context. I'm, I'm sorry, what? And then Quark starts... <sighs> I like Armin Shimmerman, and I love Quark, but... I mentioned earlier the boring. This is the most boring scene in the entire episode. There were parts where I was, without joke, I, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to mess up the green screen on my chair, but I was just lounging back, slumped. Like, you know what I mean, right? Just slumped in my chair. No, nothing to write down. I already wrote down the energy thing, which I'm talking about now. And just, it was dull. There was no energy. There was no good presentation. 
Armin Shimmerman has charisma. I've seen that already, and I know he has it in the future. So, but he comes across as, hey, it comes across as fake energy, fake enthusiasm, you know? And that that just always grates me. And then Q is just bizarrely cruel. Like, you know, I've never seen a station get destroyed into a billion bits. Huh. Now, you could say that he never intended to actually let it go that far, and that's possible, but... I, I, I don't know, it just feels like a little bit too malevolent for someone like Q to basically allow things to go this far and push for them and all that. And I, I don't know, it, it just, it, it didn't gel with me. I'll, I'll be willing to let go that point if anybody wants to argue with me on this one. Because he does, he does when they find, he's like, oh, about time you found it. Jeez, took you forever. And then he has this weird coda with her, and then she decides on a whim to not go to Daystrom and go instead go plunder some more ruins, and we never hear from her again, not counting the books. The end. I don't know. I don't like this episode. I liked it for, uh, for about 12 minutes and 50 seconds. Oh, well, we're over it. Next episode, I believe, is Dax, where we will start to establish, continue to establish who the Trill are in complete contradiction of who the Trill are. <laughs> I'll see you next time, guys.